Episode 54, The Rant. Tom Konchowski, high school basketball talent evaluator and master of his own memory. For 61 years, Tom Konchowski searches far and wide to see a new crop of talent in the game of basketball. At a park near his apartment in NYC, he discusses his love for watching NYC playground legend Connie Hawkins dunk a basketball, his formula for evaluating basketball players, his fondest memories, and what the game means to him. All that and more, my conversation with Tom, now. The rant has been brought to you by Roar Organic. Everything your body needs, nothing it doesn't. There's a reason they say variety is the spice of life. And with their new organic line comes the following exciting flavors. Georgia peach, blueberry acai, cucumber watermelon, mango clementine, pineapple mint, strawberry coconut. Ah! Roar Organic uses a proprietary electrolyte blend created with organic coconut water, organic cane sugar, and sea salt. It's non-GMO, vegan-friendly, gluten-free, no artificial colors or flavors, no preservatives, and no artificial sweeteners. Just 2 grams of sugar and only 10 calories per serving. Visit Roar.land and use the code REFEREERANT, one word, in the checkout and receive 10% off your next purchase. That's Roar.land, code REFEREERANT. The Rant has been brought to you by the revolutionary product for referees and all professionals alike, Neat Tucks. What the tuck? Traditional shirt stays have been tried and true, but never accounted for those professionals that have shorts as uniforms. What do you do when you officiate soccer or lacrosse or even basketball in the summer? Don't forget about baseball umpires, too. Enter Neat Tucks, which come in style and active versions. Don't get it twisted. You can even wear them at your 9 to 5, too. Listeners of The Rant can visit neattux.com and enter the coupon code REFEREERANT, one word, and receive 20% off your initial order. That's REFEREERANT, one word. Happy tucking. Welcome to a special edition of The Rant. I'm your host, Ralph the Ref, with a special guest, Tom Konchowski. How are you, my friend? My pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Ralph. Pleasure, too. So we are at a park not too far from... Uh, Tom's apartment in Forest Hills on Yellowstone and 67th Street, right next to a basketball court. Um, he's a New York City talent evaluator for basketball on the East Coast. Welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. So just really quickly, I ran into him at the Geico National Games. I believe that was in early April. One of my mentors, Derek Madry, um, got a chance to uh, help me introduce myself to you. And you were obviously too busy um, evaluating talent. Um, and that's something that you do on a regular basis. But I want to go all the way back. Um, how did you even get into sports? What did you play growing up? And did you play in high school and college? You know, I like to say, Ralph, the most athletic thing I've ever done in my life is jump to a conclusion. I was not a good athlete at all. I was especially not a good basketball player. My father introduced my brother and myself to basketball. He had played back way back when before the flood for the St. Valentine's Big Five in the Bronx and uh, my brother, I have a brother two years older who was a good player who went up to Canada, won a national championship up there has coached up there for 44 years at St. Francis Xavier University has won three national championships and has been the national coach for Canada uh, for no, no longer that but he's still on their executive committee up there and he was a good player, two years old and he was a bit of my mentor but I was always a basketball junkie. I, uh, baseball is everyone's first sport. Uh, I grew up a New York Giants baseball fan. Willie Mays to this state is, is to this day is my all-time favorite athlete in any sport. And uh, my brother was a Dodger fan, but I continue to pray for his soul. 
but uh, we, we just were, he was a good player, I wasn't, but I loved the game, and we go to tons of games. Back then, in the garden, every Thursday night, there was a college doubleheader, in the old garden. Now, the, the, the garden that you see now, you might think is old, it opened in February of 68, so it's 51 years old, but that's the new garden. The old garden was at 50th Street, between 50th and 49th, between 8th and 9th Avenues. And every Thursday night, there'd be a college doubleheader. And NYU and St. John's would play there. And uh, uh, teams would come in from uh, around the country. Oscar Robinson would come in, and Jerry West with West Virginia would come in. And you know, all the great teams would come into the garden, especially for the holiday f festival at Christmas time. And I fell in love with the game. I wasn't a good player, and uh, I'm fortunate to be able to be involved with basketball in a different capacity. So how did you have the foresight um, when you were young to know that you didn't think that you were good enough to go further with the career and then kind of pivot and still feel as though you wanted to continue um, some sort of capacity within the game? Well, m most kids, you know, everyone wants to be a Major League Baseball player when they're growing up. And being a Willie Mays fan, I wanted to be Willie Mays. And uh, they claimed Willie Mays was the first five-tool player. Well, I was a zero-tool player, and I realized it was quite obvious. Uh, if I were to evaluate myself or rate myself, give myself a rating, I'm not good with negative integers, so I would have had <laughs> trouble rating myself. But I wasn't good, and I'd play at the park, and I'd play in, you know, with friends and whatever, and liked the game, but never really played it competitively. Mm. But loved the game, would always be around it, and loved watching the game. And when I was in the eighth grade, I ended up, or actually before the eighth grade started, watching Connie Hawkins play. And he became my first basketball hero. And it, growing up, when I, basketball is a game of surpassing grace and beauty. It's played by the greatest athletes in the world. And growing up in New York City in the late 50s and early 60s, how could you not fall in love with the game? Watching my first hardwood hero, Connie Hawkins, the boys high palm, that cup, but palm rebounds out of the air with one hand. Seeing a decade before the installation of the three-point arc, Tony Jackson and Roger Brown launch and drain intergalactic jumpers with monotonous regularity. Witnessing Jackie Jackson, who incidentally just died two or three weeks ago, unequivocally the greatest jumper who ever lived, we peel all the laws in Newtonian physics with regard to gravity. How could we not fall in love with it? And then going on to Osbridge Malloy High School and being privileged to follow up close and personal Jack Curran developing as one of the great coaches in the history of the game at any level. And watching a tall, skinny kid by the name of Ferdinand Lewis Alcinda from St. Jude in Upper Manhattan grow into Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and true force of nature. This was the perfect storm. This was truly a golden age in New York City basketball. How could you possibly not fall in love with the game? So you felt that it was a special time while it was happening, you didn't have to have any kind of like in your rear view to say, you know what, that was a good time. You knew in the moment that it was something special. It was special. If I grew up now, if I were growing up now, New York City basketball is somewhat in decline. I might end up a soccer fan or a lacrosse fan, God, God help me. But uh, it was a special time. And these were galvanizing. Uh, Connie Hawkins was a galvanizing player. A Kareem Jabbar, when he was Lou Alcindor at Pound Memorial, was a galvanizing player. You know, you couldn't take your eyes off. It, it, it was special. 
how did you even get into writing and how did you develop your style of um, I guess when you first started I started off with uh, writing bad poetry because of some girl that didn't work out at the beach and then that kind of segued into you know writing essays and then writing more long form but I'd like to hear what your story was well I never aspired to writing poetry prose was difficult enough for me but I uh, how did I get involved with basketball well I always after I got out of school and I would coach CYO teams and coach in summer leagues and coach at summer camps and I'd go to coaching clinics to try to learn about as much about the game as I could I met a number of people over a number of years I go to tons of games and different coaches came to trust my opinion and then I met Howie Garfinkel who had started five-star basketball camp in 66 and who had started HSBI report in 64 it grew out of a magazine that he published in the fall of 63, High School Basketball Illustrated, covering New York City, Westchester, Nassau County, Rockland County, and northern New Jersey. And uh, a coach by the name of Gary Vandenberg from the Citadel gave him the idea of starting a scouting service out of that, saying that, think of the college basketball magazines where they talk about Ralph the Ref Jr. or Joe whatever, and you were a junior or a sophomore, and they'd underline your name or, or use it for future recruiting reference. Well, this is what Gary Vandenberg did, and he told Howie Garfink when he started the scanning service. Well, back in the day when I was in high school, I was aligned with the guy who got Howie Garfink involved with basketball, and they were dear friends, and then they became arch enemies. If you thought the Riverside Gaucho rivalry in the 80s and 90s was feverish, you didn't. You never saw the New York Gems coached by Mike Teinberg or the New York Nationals coached by Howie Garfinkel in the 50s or 60s. And those were the two big programs. And I was aligned with Mike Teinberg. So back then, Howie Garfinkel, when he would see me at the garden, would give me the evil eye. I was the enemy in his mind. I was a high school kid, but I was the enemy. But uh, over the course of time, we became friends in the 70s, and then he brought me in as a partner uh, in 1980 to his scouting service, and then sold it to me in 1984 when the NCAA forced him to by passing Rule 100, that college, Division I college coaches could not work at a camp which was instituted, sponsored, operated someone with the scouting service. And Five Star had become really what, uh, much bigger than the scouting service and really it was what his main focus was so we sold me the report in 84. Mm. So how did now that you had the business and now in the early 80s it's all yours how did you uh, develop your process of evaluating the talent because I know that you know your coaching experience and all of the basketball uh, that you that you experienced and watched I'm pretty sure now you can kind of categorically figure out what what kind of things that you're looking for. Uh, so how did you well, develop I'm going that? To, first of all, I'm going to start out by making it sound like a mathematical equation, which it's not. There are three variables in the basketball equation. The first is pure physical ability. How tall, how strong, how high someone can jump, how quick they are, how fast they are. The second is skill with the basketball. How they dribble the ball, pass the ball, shoot the ball, execute the fundamentals of rebounding and defense. And the third is the intangibles of head and heart. How tough, 
how resilient, how adaptive, how resourceful, how instinctive players are. Now, that makes it sound like a mathematical equation. Now, having watched high school players play for 61 years, you get a feel. And when you watch a player play, you look and you try to figure out what position he'd be cast at at the next level. Now, if it's someone who's five foot ten, he better be a point guard or, at the very least, a combination guard. And point guard obviously needs a greater dose of the intangibles than a five-man needs. A power forward obviously needs much more physical strength than a guard would need. And a wing player, a two or a three, a small forward or, or a shooting guard, obviously needs a very high uh, level of skill with the basketball. But it's really a matter of just figuring out. Those are the categories in which I think. And when I watch, after I watch someone play, in my mind's eye, I just figure, well, what are those categories? How do they fill those boxes? And then what position would they be projected at at the next level? And what combination of those qualities would they have to possess? Mm. So within the 61 hours, I know... I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Malcolm Gladwell, he uh, famously talks about the 10,000-hour rule where you become a master. 61 years, I said. You did 61 say... 61 years. So I'm, what I'm trying to say is that 10,000 hours, you become a master of something, whether you know you're doing it intentionally or unintentionally. When do you feel like you mastered and had that feel? Because I'm pretty sure within the duration, you felt it way before. When do you think that you honed in and said, you know what, I have this down to a science and I have that feel? I don't think I could say that. What I usually, because I'm an unregenerate basketball junkie, I see kids play much more than other people do. I mean, you have these weekend warriors who go to AU tournaments on weekends. I go to fall leagues and spring leagues and just go to open gyms and just whatever, not to get recruiting information with schools. And now most of these people are, this is my own personal bias, most of these people with websites, they've yet to reach basketball pupil. Mm. Most of these kids, and they they become gossip columnists more than anything else. I mean, they don't. If you go to these tournaments, they don't even watch. They're on their phone and they're texting and tweeting or whatever they're doing on their phone. They're not even watching. And then the game's over, and they'll run run up to a kid and they'll take his picture and they'll put a, a tape recorder in front of his mouth and ask him what schools he's involved with. And they think that that's being a scout. It's not. That's being a, a gossip columnist. But how long did it take me? I don't know. But I, I always would see kids play so many times. And if you were only to see them three times, you'd rather see them once one year, once another year, once the year after, because now you see patterns of not only physical maturation, but of skill development. Mm. If you would see them three consecutive days, you don't have that luxury of doing that. But uh, most of these kids, especially in the New York City area, I've seen them year after year after year, time after time after time. And I've probably seen them play much more than the other people have seen. Mm. So I couldn't tell you, and I'm not one to judge. You know, I can't tell you if I'm a good talent evaluator or not. But uh, uh, that's I'm doing what I love to do and I'm trying to help kids in my small way, but uh, I'm just doing what I'm putting one foot in front of another and trying to do my job. Mm. So, I mean, to me, I, I find it a strange time because um, 
the inception of a cell phone being ubiquitous was my senior year, which was now 20 years ago. Um, and obviously technology has rapidly advanced over that time. Um, but I think everyone that, have, that has come across you uh, over time has noticed that you stick with your, your famous yellow legal pad where you're writing down things. Um, describe the methods that you use now and how come, also just discuss the challenges that you have uh, without having a car, having an email, and having a cell phone, and people trying to contact you within this game. Well, if they want to contact me, they'll find me. They have my home phone number. I don't even have voicemail any longer. I got rid of that. I don't get the volume of phone calls I used to get. At one time, it was <laughs> it was crippling, and uh, that's why I got rid of the voicemail. But and Harry Garfinkel, when I first started working, said, "Listen," he said, "the phone will beat you down," and it it did to a large extent. Uh, but I just do what I what I can do. That's all I can do. If it's not good enough, it's not good enough. Mm. You've never considered of, of wanting to, I, I, I see what you're saying with the cell phone. You never considered trying to get a car based well, on yeah, the Well, yeah, but right, listen, right now, listen, I'm deep in the fourth quarter right now. I'm not telling you anything, but uh, I'm not about to change. I respect that. I respect that a lot. Um, do you have a succession plan now that you feel that you're in the deep fourth quarter for somebody to continue your legacy as a scout? I thought I did, and then I'm not so sure I do any longer. There was one person with whom I was very close, and I have great respect for his intelligence, and I, I like him a great deal, but uh, we don't have the same relationship, and I don't know if uh, he has all the same uh, I think he he's involved very heavily in basketball, but I think he wants to do what he's doing. Mm. Do you think you can find somebody um, from the duration of, of when you're doing this to, to find somebody as an apprentice that you can kind of groom? Perhaps, do you think it's possible? Perhaps, but that's not my, right now I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. Um, so I know you, you mentioned uh, Garfinkel um, as well as your brother. Do you have any other mentors? Um, and if you do, list them. And what have they done for you? And uh, discuss how you think that they've shaped the way you write and evaluate talent. Well, Jack Curran. Uh, the coach of Malloy, who I've known since 1960, was a, very much was, was a dear friend, but very much of a mentor to me. A coach who coached my brother in college in Acadia, in, in uh, Canada, by the name of Stu Aberdeen, who to this day is unequivocally the best recruiter I've ever been around. He, uh, he went from Acadia the University of Tennessee, became associate head coach, recruited Bernard King, Ernie Grenfeld, uh, and then became the head coach of Marshall, died in his second year as the head coach of Marshall of a heart attack at the age of 43. He, his first year at Tennessee, coming from Acadia, not recruiting players at this level, he signed Spencer Haywood out of Pershing High School in Detroit in 1967 to the National Letter of Intent even though John Wooden recruited him at UCLA. And uh, he was the best recruiter I've ever been around. Uh, an older gentleman by the name of Dick Maloney, who scouted players for more than 20 years for College of the Holy Cross. He never went there, his son Dick went there. And I would go to tons of games with him. Those were some of my mentors. But I would say Howie Garfinkel, Jack Curran, 
uh, Stu Aberdeen, Dick Maloney, probably are my mentors. Uh, what is your relationship with players, coaches, and officials um, over the years and, and now, currently? Well, almost all my friends are basketball people. And uh, when I go to a game, that's why I enjoy basketball. When I go to a game, the, the, the 19th hole is better than the first 18. We usually go out to eat afterwards. And uh, I enjoy that tremendously. And uh, coaches I'm very, very close with, kids I love. And I've stayed close with a number of the kids who've over the years and whatever. Uh, I'm going to be with Felipe and his brother at the dinner next week and whatever. Uh, referees, I know a number of referees and we're friendly, but uh, I wouldn't say it's the same relationship as with coaches and players. Mm. Although Mickey Crowley, if you remember him, I do. maybe you read his book, saw the first game he ever refereed. He ran the CYO program in my parish and he lived his family lived two houses to my right when we moved to Elmhurst on May 14th, 1956. And he lived directly across the street from me. He had just got out of the army, and he and his wife, Pat, lived in the second floor of the building right of the two-story two house, row house, right across from where I lived in Elmhurst. So I was, you know, friendly with him. I just finished his book, Throw the Ball High. And uh, a number of the referees I'm friendly with, but not to the extent the friendships aren't the same as with coaches or players. Right, but it's always coming from a place of respect, as I saw you in the Geico Nationals, and there was a lot of referees in the building, and they all paid yeah. your respects to you. Well, I probably have known them since they were players. Right. Um, speaking of which, how do you think you've seen, well, how has New York City basketball changed from the 50s to the 60s? to the 70s, the 80s, to the 90s, all the way to the present time? Well, the game itself is, has morphed several times uh, on every level. Like, the pro game is not the same game as it was 20 years ago. That wasn't the same game as it was in the 70s, obviously, and obviously that wasn't the game as in the 50s. But just in terms of New York City basketball, it everyone, every kid will say that New York is the mecca and the Garden, Madison Square Garden is the biggest stage in which, onto which they can step. Now maybe this will have more of an influence with R.J. Barrett or with Kevin Durant. The current kids say the same, they mouth those words, but they don't believe it. They, they don't have the pride in New York City basketball that kids used to have. If they did, they wouldn't abandon, they wouldn't leave top programs in New York City to go to the New England prep schools, to cross the Hudson, to go to when St. Anthony's was open, St. Anthony, even though it was a wonderful coach, there's no one better than Bob Curley, wouldn't go to that, wouldn't go to St. Pat's or the Patrick School or St. Benedict's. They wouldn't go down to the Oak Hills. They wouldn't go down to, you know, they wouldn't do that. You know, they wouldn't go to the Montfort's or the IMG's or whatever. It's, they don't have the pride they have. The one city where kids really have tremendous pride still is, is Philadelphia. Kids who were not recruited by, who were recruited, let's say, by Big E schools, uh, and if it's not Philadelphia, they may stay in home and go to Temple or La Salle or St. Joe's rather than go out of town to, to a, a major conference school, a BCS conference school. But New York City kids, uh, they've lost their pride in playing New York City basketball, and that's, the, that's regrettable. Do you think that's ever going to be revived anytime soon? 
I don't know about soon, let's hopefully it will eventually. You know, I think there's a trickle-down effect to the extent, let's say, if the Knicks or the Nets really got it going again, mm. if a St. John's or a uh, whatever local program, an Iona or whatever, really started winning on a high level, then it might restore some pride. It might. Mm. Because, um, like, just look at the, the, the golden ages. You know, the Knicks weren't winning championships in the 50s, but they went to the finals three or four times in a row, lost the Minneapolis Lakers with Mike. And then uh, that ushered in the golden age. And then uh, they weren't good in the 60s, but then they got good in the late 60s and won the championship in 70 and 73. And those were golden ages for New York City basketball on the high school level, too. So maybe, maybe it will be a trickle-down effect. Mm, I hope so, and I hope the Knicks... You know, it's really funny that everyone, um, you see a lot of the fans on TV are saying that they deserve the number one pick because because they lost so many games and they lost the most games this year. But, I mean, it's a lottery. It's No one knows anything, anything. And, you know, you can hear, and I used to be a Knicks fan, and I stopped, discontinued being a Knicks fan because it seems as though the popularity is the same no matter what the product is. And that kind of disappoints me. And I'm from an era of when, when I was a kid, I was growing up with, the Anthony Masons, the Patrick Ewings, and, and that was a team that that really um, had the identity of what New York City was at the time, and now I, I can't say it's the same. But So I agree. I agree that it probably is a trickle-down effect, and hopefully they get things going at some point. But um, having said that, who are some of the most memorable players that you have had um, the, the privilege to evaluate over the years that you remember? Well, my first year, I wasn't evaluating him. I was worshiping him was Connie Hawkins and then Jabbar obviously and then since I've actually been doing it for livelihood Kenny Anderson LeBron James Kobe Kobe Bryant players like that um, has there ever been somebody that you misevaluated and what I mean by that is that you thought initially that they weren't as good and you didn't think that they were going to bring anything to the next level and then they blossomed in the next level into college or pros Anybody memorable? Well, I'll give you a couple. First of all, James Harden, I never thought would be an NBA. I saw him in high school, and then I saw him in college. He got better at every level, but I never thought he'd be MVP in the NBA. Mm. Never. I didn't think he was that even that good of a high school player. I thought he was good, but I didn't think he was... He wasn't a McDonald's All-American. You, you thought he was D1 talent, but you thought he was like mid-major talent? No, I thought he could play it a pretty played at Arizona State right. for Herb Sendak, who's a friend of mine. I thought he could play there, but I didn't realize he'd be the star there. But he's he got better every level, so that's one player. Russell Westbrook, the same thing. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, I didn't see in high school, but I saw him in college. I never thought he'd turn out. Now he's maybe yeah. as good as there is in the game. Two other players who were local. Well, one player is local. Chris Mullen thought he was very good. And McDonald's All-American, and deservedly. And I thought he'd be a very good college player, and I thought he'd be a pro. Would he be an NBA All-Star and a Hall of Fame inductee? I, I didn't see that. So I have to plead ignorance on that. And a player whom I overrated, that I thought would be really good, not that he ended up a total bust, there was a kid from Canada by the name of Barry Beckerdam, 6'10", who came down from Canada and went to Archbishop Carroll in Radnor, PA in the Philadelphia Catholic League for his junior and senior year. 
And he made McDonald's All-American his senior year, and he went to Villanova. And he, he had an okay career, but nothing great. I thought he would be better than he, than he turned out. Mm. Now, I'm sure there are many, many more, but those are just a few that come to mind. Right. Um, so I know we talked off air when we were driving to the park, um, just your philosophy about your memory. Um, and I think if anyone could agree, probably if they hear this podcast, that they'll probably think that your recall is insane. You just can kind of recall things. Um, but how would you describe your memory, and how has it helped you uh, being an evaluator? Well, I think my memory is okay. I forget a lot of things, believe me. Especially the older I get, the more I forget. My long-term memory maybe has even gotten better. But first of all, I write everything down. Confucius say the faintest ink better than the best memory. And if you look at my yellow legal pad, you'll see the number I paginate, and you'll see the number of the page there. Mm. I see 10,786? Yes. Wow. So I write everything down, so I can always go back and reference it. But as, I, as you and Joe and myself were talking in the car, all memory is selective, and all memory is associative. By selective, I mean there are experiences common to the three of us that you, Ralph, will remember that Joe and I won't, that Joe will remember that you and I won't, that I'll remember that you and Joe won't. By associative, I mean it's, everything is by association, whether we rem realize that or not. Everything is by association. Uh, I can pull out a date based on, it's a date I remember for whatever reason, uh, uh, a cataclysmic uh, a political development or, or something in my personal life or my family's life or whatever. And it's all by association. Yeah. You know but, what I'm, I'm going to remember today is that I met you the same day. We recorded the podcast the same day that Robert Mueller spoke <laughs> to, to the country. That's how I'm going to remember this day. <laughs> um, what is the most memorable game that you've ever witnessed? Well, the game is probably, see, Kenny Hawkins was my first hero. And I was in the eighth grade when he was a senior. And the first high school American game was played on June 29th, 1960, at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City. The last year the Dodgers were in Brooklyn in 1957, they played seven home games at Roosevelt Stadium. And from the time it was in the in Milton Gross's column in the New York Post, probably in March of 60, and they said to the game that Hawkins and Brown were supposed to play in the game. You know, I pestered my father. The only graduation present I wanted from the eighth grade was to go to that game. So my, my father got tickets for himself, for my brother Steve, and for myself. And we went to the game. We had the best seats in the house. It was played, the, the court was placed on the infield at Roosevelt Stadium. They had, the attendance was 15,000, but they had maybe about eight rows of bleachers on the uh, each side of the court, but I was directly at half court, right on the half court line. My, I guarantee I bugged my father so much that he probably the first person who sent in the tickets. So I wanted to see my hero, Connie Hawkins. And I'll tell you who played in that game, John Thompson, big John Thompson who played at, at Providence and coached Georgetown to the national championship with Patrick Ewing in 84. 
he played in the game. Connie Hawkins, Roger Brown, Jeff Mullins, uh, Cotton Nash, George Wilson, uh, Paul Silas. I mean, so many great, great players were in that game. But in any event, we go to the game. It's outdoors. It didn't rain. It looked like it was going to rain, sort of like today. And it didn't rain, but there was tremendous humidity. The prelim was New York versus New Jersey. Roy Rubin, who had coached Columbus, who later became the head coach of LIU and became the coach of the Sixers and coached the worst record in history in 72-73-9-73, got fired before the season was over and Kevin Lockley took over and became, that was his first, he was player coach and it was his first coaching job. But he coached New York and Dick King, even though he coached Joel Hallows, he was Jack Curran's coach, Joel Hallows lived in North Berg and coached Jersey. But everyone was slipping and sliding all over the court. Well, the, the, the game starts, never rain. The game starts, the main game, the All-American game, East versus West. And the big forward from, the, from Marshall High in uh, Chicago was George Wilson, who ended up going to Cincinnati. Uh, they won national championships there with him. And uh, he, the big matchup was supposed to be Hawkins against George Wilson. Well, unbeknownst to me, Connie Hawkins was graduating from Boys High that day. He was the fifth of, uh, his, of Dorothy Hawkins' six children. She was going blind. She wanted, she insisted to see him graduate before she went blind. So he wasn't going to play in the game. Well, the game starts, and he's not there. Barry Kramer played in the game. Great players. I'm heartbroken because there's no Connie Hawkins. Right at the end of the first quarter, Someone comes running out of the dugout across the infield to the bench, who was Connie Hawkins. His older brother, Fred, at the end of graduation said, Connie, we can probably make it. And he packed his stuff. The only thing he forgot to bring were sneakers. <laughs> and Connie Hawkins wore size 14, and the best they could get was size 12. So he played in sneakers two sizes too small. And he came in, they put him at the game, he, the beginning of the second quarter, and he took over the game. He had scored 20 points. John Thompson was the high scorer with 26, but Connie Hawkins was the overwhelming MVP, just took over the game. Jeff Mullins, who was a high school All-American from Lexington Lafayette, who went to Duke, played in the NBA for a number of years, later coached UNC Charlotte, and took them to the NCAA tournament many times. I would always talk, I still have that program from that game. But we'd, we'd always talk when I'd run into him during the summer when he was recruiting, and he'd say, everyone else was slipping and sliding. Well, the only person who had his footing was, was, was Kenny Hawkins. Maybe because he's wearing sneakers two sizes too small. But Hawkins, that's the most memorable game that I've ever attended. Because he was my hero, and first my heart was broken, and then my spirit soared when he showed up. And I'm pretty sure that um, his feet were super sore after the game, after he was wearing those shoe shoes. <laughs> Um, what is the best rivalry that you've seen um, in terms of teams uh, that you've seen? As well, I'll tell you this. I'd say the best rivalry probably in, D in the P best rivalry in the PSL was Lincoln against Grady because they're in such close proximity, about two or three blocks apart from each other in Coney Island. But Grady is not even in the same league any longer. They're not double A, they're A. Uh, that was the best PSL rivalry. Back in the day when I was growing up, the best rivalry would be Boys High Erasmus or, or uh, Boys High Jefferson. Uh, 
the best rivalry now might be uh, DeMatha Gonzaga in D.C. in the Washington Catholic League, which is probably the best high school league in the country now. It's only 11 schools, but the top half of them, DeMatha, Gonzaga, Paul VI, Bishop O'Connell, St. John's, you know, they're all, Archbishop Carroll, they're all, four of them usually nationally ranked. The best high school, the best Catholic league rivalry, I would say from the 60s into the 70s, was Malloy Holy Cross, was a great, great, great rivalry. It's certainly not any longer. Christ the King Rice was a great rivalry. You know, Rice closed in 2010. Uh, Christ the King now, I don't know, is Christ the King St. Raymond's was a great rivalry that continues. Christ the King Lachlan, still a great rivalry. The last two years, it's been stepped back against Christ the King in the city finals. That's and if RJ and AJ stay there, that'll continue to be a great rivalry. You think there's a possibility that they might leave to a prep school? One of them may. Mm. Let's uh, hope not. Well, let's let's definitely hope not, because I, I enjoy reffing them. Um, what is the best rivalry that you've seen in terms of two players going back and forth? Well, I didn't see the game. with the first of many, many mistakes in my, my lifetime. I didn't see the Hawkins-Brown game at the Garden where they had 14-5 in attendance, 14,500 people. I think it was uh, March 14, 1960. My brother, I was in the eighth grade, my brother was a sophomore at Malloy on the JV. And that night was the quarterfinals of the uh, NIT. And St. John's with Tony Jackson, All-American, was playing against St. Bonaventure with Tom Stith, All-American. And my mother told us, you can't go to both. Either you go to the afternoon game, the high school game, and come home and do your homework, or you come home and do your homework and then go to the college games. Well, wait to hear this. This is the first of many tragic mistakes in my life. I'm only half responsible. My brother was the other half responsible. We chose to go to the college game. Okay, boys high, we end up taking the train in, the E-train in, get off at 50th Street, we're walking up the steps out of the subway, and Connie Hawkins is walking down the steps. And, you know, he was my hero, but I would never even, you know, I, I herald back to John Updike was a huge Ted Williams fan. He was a Boston Red Sox fan. And someone asked him, did he ever write to him? And his, his response was, gods do not answer mail. I wouldn't have presumed to speak. I was lower than low. Connie Hawkins was my hero. I didn't ask him, but there were two kids with, with Jefferson jackets on in front of him walking, and they were going to see uh, Tony Jackson play in the college game. And they asked him, Hawk, how do you do? And he said, we won, but he looked very glum. Boys High won 62-59, but Connie Hawkins guarded Roger Brown. Roger Brown did not guard Connie Hawkins. And Roger Brown fouled him out with six seconds to go in the third quarter. Connie Hawkins had 18 points. Roger Brown ended up with 39, but Boys High won. On the pack page of the Daily News, the next day was a picture. It says, Boys drops in at the garden. And it's a picture of Connie Hawkins dunking. And his, his wrist is inside the basket. And the net is flaring up. And the ball's inside the, the, the net. And he has like his 
I don't know if it's his left leg or right leg, is on the shoulder of one of the Wingate players. So in any, I, so I passed up that game and we went to the college game. Well, that night, what should have been a great game turned into a rout. And St. Bonaventure beat St. John's 106-71 by 35 points. The worst loss in St. John's until when Norm Roberts was coaching there, he had more than a 35-point loss one game. So obviously that was a terrible, tragic mistake on my part mm. not to go to that game. That would have been the greatest, the Hawkins versus Brown. I saw, never saw them play against each other. I saw them play on the Gems and on Summer League teams many times together, but I never saw them play against each other. In terms of players playing against each other, I'll tell you a couple of... Uh, well, at one time in the 1990, there were... Tell you who was in the New York Catholic League, four McDonald's All-Americans, two from Christ the King, Khalid Reeves and Derek Phelps, and two from uh, Talentine, Adrian Autry and Brian Reeves. And Jamal Mashburn was, even though he was New York State Player of the Year that year, didn't make McDonald's All-American. So any of those games where those those people were, Hayes played against uh, played against Talentine, or Christ the King played against Talentine. Uh, when Kenny Anderson played great rivalries, Kenny Anderson against uh, Christ the King when they had Khalid, he was one year ahead of them, but against Khalid Reeves and Derek Phelps and uh, uh, Jamal Faulkner, who was a McDonald's All-American the year Kenny was in 89. They had three McDonald's All-Americans in that Christ the King. One was a senior, uh, Jamal Faulkner, and then two were Two were juniors, Derek Phelps and, and uh, Khalid Reeves. So those were great games. Uh, I'll tell you, it was one of the great games I've ever seen in high school. The, the Brooklyn Diocesan final in 1983 at St. Francis Prep, Bishop Lachlan, the Brooklyn winner against Malloy, the Queens winner, Mark Jackson against Kenny, Anderson, uh, Kenny Smith. Malloy beat them in overtime. Kenny Smith had 42, Mark Jackson had 36. And that was the first time that Dean Smith saw Kenny Smith play. Mm. Eddie Foglet came to see him in January when Malloy played at St. Francis Prep. And then Dean Smith came, and Kenny Smith was visiting that weekend right after the game against the Dyson final against... And I remember downstairs at St. Francis Prep waiting in the hallway outside the Malloy locker room, and, and Dean Smith was there. And when Kenny Smith came out, he said, Kenny, I'm Coach Smith. I can't talk to you now, but we'll be on the same flight tomorrow morning. And he ended up going there on his visit, and he ended up going, signing there and going there. He was National College Player of the Year in 87. Unbelievable. Um, I know that you, you speak of a time that is a lot different than what it is today. Um, how do you think kids have changed over the years? And, you know, I, I struggled that as a coach. And, you know, I, I told you off air that I've been coaching the Kellenberg volleyball team girls uh, for 20 years and I can see that I'm having a difficulty with them really locking in because of all the distractions, the cell phones and all that. Um, so how do you think kids have changed over the years as you've been an evaluator? Well, I think kids are still kids. There are so many more distractions and all the technology has complicated their lives. And beyond that, what problems kids have, other than the technology and being, you know, their attention span used to be like this, now it's like this. Mm. Uh, 
But other than that, I think parents have probably changed more so than kids. You know, parents have ceased to be parents. They want to be friends. And uh, not to give direction to their kids, but to, they want to be liked by their kids. But kids, uh, kids are still kids. Now, I agree, it's harder now because of they don't have, uh, I always, when I talk about, when I do speak, not that I speak a great deal, I always talk about keys to success. The first key is got to develop the ability to listen. One of the primary signs of intelligence is the ability to listen. Conversely, someone who is not a good listener is simply not an intelligent person. If you're not willing to listen, you'll never learn. If you never learn, you'll never get any better. You'll, at best case scenario, will stay the same. Usually you'll backslide. And the ability to listen is two parts. Number one, it's the willingness to listen. The willingness to admit there are people out of there by virtue of their age or experience or uh, training possess a body of knowledge into which you can tap to make you better. And secondly, it's got to develop uh, concentration. You know, most of us have very short concentration spans. We have to try to widen them. So that's the first key. The second is you've got to set goals. Uh, the third is you've got to learn from your mistakes. You've got to learn to turn failure into fertilizer. And fourth is the use of Reggie Jackson. His first world championship was with the Oakland A's in 73 when they beat my Mets in seven games. And even though Seaver was pitching game seven. And... Uh, Inside this world championship ring, he doesn't have his initials, he doesn't have his name inscribed. He has three letters, S plus S equals S. Sweat plus sacrifice equals success. And there are no shortcuts. So those are always my key. But the whole thing is, kids have to learn how to listen, and they've also got to expand their concentration span. And technology is their main enemy in that regard. So you think that's the reason as to why their attention span has been a lot shorter? Absolutely. So after everything that you've said thus far in this great podcast, um, what do you think of the attributes? What do you think it took to get to where you are at this moment in time? Well, I'm not, A, I'm not sure where I am. All I know is I'm doing something that I love to do, and I'm working as hard as I can within the within the parameters of my technophobia and uh, I'm putting one foot in front of the other and I'm trying to do things and I'm trying to use this to help people. I always say this, basketball is my mistress, my Catholic faith is my lawful wife. What I've attempted to do, in however imperfect way is that I've attempted, is to place basketball at the service of my faith and try to help people, mm. try to help kids. Um, having said that, what do you think it's going to take to get to where you want to go and ultimately where do you want to go for the, the duration, the rest of your career? I want to try to continue to try to help kids and, and lead a Christ-centered life. And where I want to go is up there. Um, what do you think is the stickiest situation that you've ever been in as an, an evaluator? Do you think uh, maybe you were well, late because there was a bus that you missed? Or no, you didn't have I'll, I'll tell you a story about it. And it certainly worked out in the long run. 
This was the first, Gary McKnight, who coaches Mata Day in California, and he's won over a thousand games, and he has a ridiculous record. His first year coaching there was 82-83, so this was his uh, 37th year. And uh, he has an incredible program. He's had great players and won a number of state championships and whatever. His uh, second year coaching was, uh, he had uh, a kid who was a senior who had committed to Notre Dame, uh, uh, Tom Beezer. And then he had a very good junior, no, Max Beezer uh, was the senior. And then he had a kid, Tommy Lewis, who was a junior. And they came east and they played DeMatha and St. John's College High School at Tacoma Academy. And this was right, I'll give you the dates. This was the 20th and 21st of December, 1983. And Ocean View High School came with them and they played, they played double headers. They just exchanged opponents. It wasn't winners against winners. The first night, DeMatha played Ocean View and St. John's College High School played against uh, uh, Mata Day, and then the second night. Now, there was an, an ice storm the second night. And the game was delayed because Mata Day couldn't get there from their hotel. The game started like an hour, an hour and a half late. There was an ice storm on December 21st, 1983 in Washington. And Tacoma Academy is just right out in, I don't know if that's uh, Montgomery County or PG County or whatever. So we're at the game, but the first game is played, and there's a lot of, there's a tremendous delay between the first and the second. There was a kid who played at St. John's College High School, and he had played against Ocean View in the, the first game. And uh, his name was Grayson Marshall. He was a lefty guard, about 5'11", 6 feet tall, and he had come to Five Star, and I knew him well from Five Star. He had come multiple sessions, and he was a good player. In between games, Grace, Grayson Marshall comes over to speak with me. And I asked him, how's school going? Fine. He said, uh, what schools are you considering? Because this was only the second year of the early signing period in November. The first year in November signing period was in 82. For the class of 83, Kenny Smith senior year. And he said, and he mentions a few schools, and one of the schools he mentions is Kentucky. And we're friendly. And I said, well, Grayson, Kentucky may be a little high. Now, it might be a little high for you. And he, uh, he didn't take any umbrage at that. And we finished up talking and whatever. And then he goes away, and this, his father comes over. And his father was standing behind me. I didn't even know it was his father. I didn't even know he was there. And he said, who are you to tell my son that he can't play at University of Kentucky? I didn't say you can't play. I, I said, because I don't talk like that. You know, I said, eh, it might be a little high. Maybe you would adjust your level, you know, that sort of thing. So he was all upset. Well, the bottom line is, the, at the end of the season, Grayson Marshall still is, is, is uncommitted. And I happen to be at this, the day before I go to the Dapper Dam. This is in 84 in Pittsburgh. And Cliff Ellis, who had, used, had been at uh, University of South Alabama, got the Clemson job. And he calls me. And he's looking for a point guard. And I give him Grayson Marshall's name. 
and he recruits him. And he goes to Clemson, and he becomes the all-time career assist leader in the ACC. Since broken by at least three people, Chris Corciani at NC State, okay, Bobby Hurley at Duke, who I think still has the record, and Eddie Coda at North Carolina. So it worked out that way. And he went to Clemson, which was a high level, but Clemson wasn't Duke. No, Duke back then wasn't quite Duke yet. Right. You know, in that class, you know, he did, Mike Krzyzewski in the class of 82 had Dawkins. The next year he had Allery and Billis and Henderson and and uh, and uh, Tommy Amica and also a kid, Greg Went from Detroit who transferred back to U of D. But uh, North Carolina, Kentucky were like the gold standard back then. You know, it would be really hard to play there. Clemson played in that league, but it wasn't the same as playing at North Carolina or whatever. Right. And Clemson still has yet to break through um, at that type of stage still. Well, and who knows if they ever will. They've gone to the NCAA tournament a number of times when Rick Barnes was there and whatever, but they, they still... And they went to the NCAA tournament in 18, too. Um, what is the best moment that you have ever had as an evaluator during your tenure? What's the most fulfilling thing that has ever happened or particular instance? Well, I don't know if this was to be able to help certain kids and certain kids, I've got them scholarships and they haven't been coached and even see them play because they trusted my uh, a kid by the name of uh, Brian Mullins. His father coached the Illinois Wolves. He's now his older, his younger brother, uh, uh, Brendan Mullins. His younger brother, Brian, is the head coach of Southern Illinois, and now he went left Loyola Chicago to become an assistant with his brother. But uh, uh, a kid just the other day from Island Garden, a kid out of La Salle Academy by the name of Van Damian Green, and he has two sons who play for Riverside Church. One is 10, his name is Damien, and the eight, eight-year-old is, they were both playing out the other day, is Lamont, because he's Le, uh, Von Damien Lamont Green. He was a little 5'9", lefty guard who played at La Salle Academy for Belabor. And he didn't have a place to go, and he didn't have great grades, and Scott Gernando was the coach of San Jacinto, and I mean, and that's where Sam Cassell went and Walter Berry went and all those players there. He, well, oh, Ronnie Arrow was really the head coach then, and he was the assistant. Scott Janando calls me up, and he's looking for a point guard. And I give him Von Damian Green's name and give him Bill Abra's home phone number, and he calls him, and Von Damian Green goes there, and he ends up getting a four-year scholarship from there and ends up graduating from college. I never see Von Damien Green until they had a fundraiser last year at Columbia University for Riverside Church in the gym. And he's there and he introduced me to his wife and, uh, and his, his kids and his kids were playing. And then he was at Island Garden the other day. And he comes over to me, he's actually, he's filming because his son, who's the 10 year old, is playing on court three in Island Garden. And I walk over, I didn't even know it was Von Damien. I walk over and he comes and says hello and then I recognize who it was. And then he brings his son over to introduce him to me. And I think I had met one of them, maybe maybe the youngest son before. And uh, uh, 
he said, I want you to meet. And I said, my name is Tom. I'm a friend, longtime friend of your father. And he said, no, no, not a friend. He's my garden angel. It's the only reason I could ever go to college. Unbelievable. So, I mean, uh, that's, that's yeah. the fulfillment of trying to help people. Having said that, this is my final question to you. What has basketball given you in your life? What does it mean to you? Well, it certainly has not showered me with extravagant material blessings, but has provided me with memories and friendships that will last a lifetime and one of the deep joys of my life. This has been a joy for me. I hope that we stay in touch from now on, too. Let's stay in touch. I need your number, though, Ralph. I will give it to you off air. Um, and hopefully you'll see me blossom as a uh, PSAL and a, and a Catholic League ref, and then you know, eventually I'll be on my way to college at some point. But um, for Tom Kanchowski, this is Ralph the Ref. This is The Ramp for signing out. Pleasure meeting you.